Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It. Tonight, we've got Ro. Good evening. And Paul. Hello. And I'm Vanessa. So thanks for being with us. We're going to be taking a look at the current state of charging stations in Melbourne for electric vehicles. Who's responsible for making plenty of charging stations available for EV drivers? Um, So we'll be chatting to a Swinburne professor all about that. Also, we'll be taking a look at Twitter, the social media network for sex workers, which has recently announced that it will be closing. And we'll dive into um, the story behind that with one of the creators so that should be very interesting. Super well-intentioned site and um, kind of a victim of circumstance, you'd say. Yeah, or, you know, relentless legislation and one, you know, death by a million paper cuts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So before we get into our two interviews this evening, we'll hop into some news. Paul, what's happening with, uh, you know, telecommunications? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so potentially some big news that maybe we won't see the full benefits of for a little while. Um, but TPG Telecom uh, have signed uh, what is an initial 10-year uh, agreement with Telstra with an option to extend uh, for a further uh, decade. That probably does sound quite dry um, and maybe not great for, for the show. But what's potentially interesting about it is that this is sort of a network sharing deal um, as part of it. Um, Basically, the 80% of coverage that Telstra has is that TPG are going to have uh, access to, which means that they're going to decommission a whole bunch of their existing... um, Redundant now infrastructure. Yeah, Yeah, infrastructure. Um, And it also gives uh, Telstra some access to TPG's kind of 3G and 4G network as well. So it's not really an acquisition, but it doesn't seem to be also be like you know, a traditional carrier sale. It seems like a new type of deal. Well, it is, you know, they're still in competition with each other and you'd have to say the consumer will hopefully win out there because you do need better access to that Telstra network, particularly if you're in regional areas. Mm, It's critical, yeah. And they're maintaining all of their, what they describe as their network differentiation. So all of the kind of the core and the underpinning services like are going to still be TPG and Telstra. So... It's not really a sale. It's not really an acquisition. It's not really a merger. It's not really an MVNO. <laughs> it's some sort of new Well, thing. it's an agreement. It's yeah. an agreement, you know. Yeah. To sort of share infrastructure. And obviously at a business level, they're, they're talking about this will let us monetize parts of our network that we haven't used before <laughs> um, and things like that. And incre- as you say, increase competition for consumers. The rev is still that, like 18% of the network that Telstra is going to um, retain exclusive access to. Uh, as well. So if you're part of that 1% of the Australian population, you're still not going to have much competition or access to choice. But I mean, who knows, maybe that will change in the future as this kind of, as this emerges. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one to watch. Um, Speaking of absolutely enormous tech providers, um, Facebook has been operating reels in the US for a little while now, testing it out, but they're now in the process of launching them globally, including Australia. So um, basically they're betting on their newest to fastest growing format. So um, Remind us what reels are again for people who might not have spent much time on Facebook recently. Yeah, absolutely, which is a heap of us. Um, (laughs) So reels is essentially... Essentially, um, 
auto sped up, super short, short and sharp, pardon me, blur English, uh, short and sharp videos and um, things like they auto play and auto start and they're very distracting and they're very, you know, short, sharp and fabulous. So, um, TikTok has obviously been a huge part of the explosion in uh, social media networks revising their video offering. Instagram is really getting into reels, obviously, as part of the meta family, as is Facebook. Now, Facebook reported um, this month an absolutely dismal earnings report, like it's down 30% or something along those lines. And um, they're a little bit desperate to attract those younger users. So um, they're basically prioritising this short video content and, um, you know, onwards ho, still, you know, chasing TikTok really hard, which is, of course, owned by the Chinese tech giant ByteDance. It's so interesting to see how blatantly they can rip features off other social media companies and really face zero consequences for it. You know, it's so difficult to Mm. own a feature in that space right now. It's it's really fascinating and it also, I find it, I don't know, both frustrating and amusing and equal, um, Brexit, they're, they're doing a rip-off. They've got all of the money in the world at their hands to actually develop a great user experience and they don't. They just go, ah, quick, let's plug this thing in and, and flap their hands around like chickens and make it work or try to. And because both the Instagram and the Facebook experiences, I've got to say, aren't really terrific mm. and um yeah I mean, if, the, if the small players they copy are lucky they get acquired but if they're unlucky mm. they just get ripped off yep yeah. yep so i think that's a that's a big part of the problem so mm. but anyway yeah more more reels you know landing in your <laughs> in i love your that social youth, media platforms the soon. youth use their you know um inauthenticity detectors and uh big time. away mm-hmm. very good very good um, and speaking as we were about uh, a series of tubes, uh, which is the internet, um, uh, Virgin Hyperloop, which uh, was effectively a pod that you would travel through a pressurized tube very, very quickly, um, has just this week um, let 111 of its employees go um, as it has basically abandoned the idea of it being for people and only for boxes and cargo. Um the claiming obviously COVID uh, and supply chain issues on that, but also maybe people saw what happened in Godzilla, like the most recent Godzilla <laughs> film, and they don't, they don't, they don't want that to happen. They don't want to be transported to some sort of scary uh, oh dystopian goodness, dystopian place. So yeah, if you if you wanted to spend some time traveling through a tube, your best bet is to wait for Elon Musk's car driving tube now because the, the Hyperloop is no longer for passengers. We really need a crossover episode of Primal Screen so that we can cover <laughs> these, yeah, debunk the reality from the movie version. Um, That's funny. Uh, Ro, what's happening with Spotify at the moment? Oh, good old Spotify. It's the news gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? <laughs> So Spotify has been in the news of late for, you know, plenty of wrong reasons, but this one is actually a sensible, robust business decision. So obviously there have been some absolutely massive podcast numbers being thrown into the ether at the moment. Um, you know, the Sussexes, Harry and Megan have been offered a hundred million or they've, they've got a deal for a hundred million dollars to produce podcasts for Spotify, Joe Rogan, hundred million dollars podcast Spotify, but it seems that they haven't actually been able to justify that to advertise out the back end and actually get that income rolling. So Spotify has now announced the acquisitions of um, pod sites, which helps to actually measure that podcast advertising, as well as um, Chartable, which is another podcast analytics platform that is going to help podcasters learn more about their audience, but also be able to um, 
talk to their advertisers like any other sensible media outlet content you know provider and actually make some money off their platforms because goodness knows they're not going to get it from their streams well it just shows you where they're going maybe they'll get out of the music business who knows (laughs) exactly that wouldn't wouldn't be sad if they did look and later in the show we will be speaking with an expert in electric vehicles and infrastructure but I thought it'd be interesting to reflect on an article that I saw about what's happening with used car prices so Apparently, um, there's a Moody's analytics report that have said uh, that has expected prices of cars will increase soon. But for now, um, used car prices have jumped 21% in the last year uh, due to things like low inventory and a shortage of new vehicles as well. So people are just, you know, jumping on what's available in the used car market. Uh, They're expecting that it's going to get even more expensive um, by maybe 3.6% before they start to slip back in 2023, presumably when shipping channels open up a bit more and cars are moving around more. Mm. Um, so that that was a news piece from January. But in the States, we've got some updated news from Feb. Um, so over the last two years there, uh, they're saying supply chain breakdowns and chip shortages both led to a decrease in new car production. And uh, we're also talking about how used cars were appreciating in value with average prices up 40.5%. And we know, you know, the US is a very particular market there, you know, very car driven, um, can't really be easily compared to Australia. We've got a little bit different motivations here, but still super interesting to see. Um, and hopefully if people are in the market for cars, they're thinking about electric vehicles and uh, maybe if you can hold on to that 2023 time you know that's when those those uh, prices might actually start coming down yeah we know that we do get a lot of um, secondhand EVs from other countries shipped to Australia so that can be an interesting channel we'll explore it a little bit later in the show Mm, it's it's definitely a space I'm I'm really curious to learn more about because it's just been one of those industries we've seen change almost in in real time over those last five or six years. Um, you know, some years ago I was doing car reviews and um, got to take out one of the first Nissan Leafs, yes. and it was absolutely fantastic. But the guys were like. You can't go very far. We've got one charger in the car park. You're going to get about 60 kilometres out of it. Um, so make sure you, you know, put your <laughs> put your Odo on and don't go too far or we'll be picking you up in a tow truck. Well, and all it's that- awesome to see how far it's come. So it's going to be a really interesting chat a bit later in the show. Picking up on our, our conversation about uh, electric uh, vehicles, uh, some news uh, from the Victorian government. So obviously they knew we were going to be talking about it on the show uh, this <laughs> evening as well. Um, so the Victorian government uh, is adding uh, what they call zero emission vehicles, um, so electric vehicles, to the government fleet. Um, and that's 75 ZEVs, if you're looking for the acronym, um, set to replace already existing petrol vehicles, which are currently part of the government um, fleet. Like last year, the Victoria allocated $50 million, um, to add up to 400 uh, ZEVs to the fleet, um, which was an upgrade of an already announced $10 million plan um it's not it's good to know some cars are getting in that's fantastic yeah they must have had this in planning for a while yeah so and our victorian uh, assistant treasurer danny pearson uh, was talking about electric and zero emissions vehicles are the future of transport and we're paving the way for the first zevs entering the victorian government fleet um 
And then there's going to be a second stage beyond this. So obviously the 75 is the first, and then there's going to be 325 taking us up to that 400 number um, by June 30, 2023. Ah, by end of financial year. <laughs> there's some budgeting issues in there. Yep, I so think so. Interesting. <laughs> Excellent. Have you driven any electric vehicles yourself? I haven't, but there was the article I read in The Guardian recently about someone who was trying to do a massive drive. Yeah. And them and had um, the anxiety, basically, like <laughs> I think as, as we were just talking about off, off air, like that odometer anxiety. Um, so even with the increased range, it's still like, how do you find a charging station? When you get one, how long do you have to wait? Like situating them in places where there are lots of cafes. So it's like, yeah, you plug in your car, you go and have a nice coffee, you kind of explore the area and then you come back and you get your your little bump off or you have to wait for someone else. Oh, you can definitely imagine the the stress and pressure that comes with that because um, I watched not all that long ago um, the documentary series Long Way Up, which was um, Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman doing motorbikes. It's their third or fourth one in the series, but this time they did it on Harley-Davidson EV motorbikes and they had Rivian um, support cars and um, they started, you know, right down at Tierra del Fuego and, and went up to, you know, Alaska, Canada, somewhere. And um, it was incredibly cool because the Rivian team, um, you know, teamed up and actually set up a charging station highway for them, like brought their plans forward oh, a wow. couple of years so that they could actually, you know, travel. But um, the the first like half of the entire series was, oh my God, are we going to make it? Oh my God, we're in the middle of, you know, an absolute glacier and the engines are frozen, the batteries are frozen and oh my God, <laughs> what are we going to do next? So you sort of really got a sense of that, um, the, the charging and the distances between charging, it's got to be as ubiquitous as possible, as yeah, soon yeah. as possible for it to work. Yeah, this article was saying that like they, they, made, they were turning off the air conditioning and they were like <laughs> coasting downhills as much as they could and like making sure all the windows were open or like putting on jumpers rather than turning a heater on just to kind of eke out that like last last 10 20 kilometers oh, it's like being a broke pea plater again <laughs> <laughs> rolling your, the old tirana down the hill to try to get to the servo before you run out of petrol <laughs> is this just the natural anxiety that we have about any technological change i mean did people feel this about where am i going to get my next hit of petrol when cars first came out probably yeah probably uh... Where where can I feed my horse? Yes, like, yeah, I was just thinking keep, keep, that. Keep going back. If Who's I lose hay? a shoe, yeah. where's, where's the what next? What if my legs stop working? Like, what if I can't find an apple? Well, like along the way, <laughs> a bucket of molasses yeah. for my horse. <laughs> Excellent. Um, oh, love it. Yeah, that's really great. I do wonder about those sort of anxieties. It sort of goes hand in hand with the concept of moral panics that come with each wave of technology. So yeah, it's kind of curious. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts. As part of the federal government's Future Fuels Fund, the Collingwood Library now has two new DC fast chargers. What are those? Those are those chargers you see around for fancy electric vehicles. But should it be councils who bring this technology to people? Professor Saad Mekalef is a distinguished professor in electrical renewable energy at Swinburne University, and he joins us now to tell us more. Welcome, Professor. Hi. Great, great to have you. Thank you for um, calling us back when we're having a few little technical difficulties. It's always the case when you have an esteemed um, electrical engineering type person in that your technology fails you. Hello? Hello, can you hear us? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please, can you repeat again? Yeah. Yes. No, that's okay. We were just, we were just, um, just yeah. enjoying hearing from you, and uh, we might put your volume up because some people can't hear. You. Yeah, you've got it. Perfect. All right. Hopefully, you can hear us better now. So. Yeah, yeah. We, we just said that, you know, the, the Federal Government's Future Fuels Fund is helping people like the Collingwood Library install new DC fast chargers. Yeah. Tell us what you think about the sort of incentives that we're starting to see around electric vehicles in Australia, if you would. Yeah, I think uh, that's a very good initiative. Uh, uh, the municipal councils and the, the government should lead the way in uh, providing and building uh, public charging infrastructures and also encourage other stakeholders to invest in it. Uh, I think it's a new uh, new technology where people need uh, more incentives and also to build the confidence in the, in the uh, new technology, which is the electric vehicles. Definitely. Well, we get very excited when we see these pop up. How has our government performed in terms of incentivising people to actually purchase electric vehicles? I think uh, Australia have, uh, make, have made uh, quite a number of steps towards the, uh, electrifying the fleet of uh, like, well, small vehicles. However, it's still lacking. You know, we think there, there should be more incentives, there should be more initiatives from the governments to, uh, uh, to promote and also to, uh, to encourage people to own electric vehicles, such as, uh, you know, I think there are good examples in Europe that we should follow, such as in um, Norway, Finland, and Denmark, you know. So these are some leading countries which has, uh, they have done quite uh, good in promoting and increasing the number of electric vehicles uh, on their roads. So when you look at those countries, um, what are some of the, the things that have worked for, say, you know, Denmark, we tend to think of bicycles more than electric vehicles. How are they going with their EV program? Yeah, I think um, the Scandinavian countries are the leading, the, the five uh, countries uh, in, um, uh, in Europe, they are leading the, the number of cars. Like, for example, Norway, they are like around 75%. Of their electric uh, of their cars are electric vehicles. Iceland, 45%. Sweden, 32%. Netherlands is around 24%. Denmark is around 16 or 17%. So uh, I think this doesn't come like uh, overnight. It comes from uh, longer planning, such as uh, building EV charging infrastructures, uh, offering free parking spaces and uh, priority parkings for uh, EV owners, uh, enable also um, uh, zero emission uh, rates for last mile uh, deliveries, allow EVs to access bus lanes, and also uh, make some uh, uh, initiative, uh, initiative for the uh, car, uh, taxi, and uh, Uber, and uh, ride healing owners to be more or to be electric. So these are few um, what we call uh, steps have they have taken, and that's resulted in the number of electric vehicles increased significantly. That is a lot of practical steps that you've listed there, mm -hmm. and some really impressive um, uptake 
particularly Norway, 75%. Um, that's pretty interesting. I wonder how do those countries compare with some of the geographic challenges that Australia faces with sort of, you know, the distances that we're looking at and, and therefore trying to, you know, realistically get in enough infrastructure to, to influence change behaviours? Yeah, that's true. Actually, uh, if we compare, the, for example, Iceland or uh, Finland or any other countries to Australia, Australia is a huge country which, where people do travel long distances. However, I think it's uh, uh, maybe the, the starting will be in the, around the CBD and uh, around the regional areas. Okay, I think that will be good. Now we can see, for example, in Melbourne, we can see that there is actually quite significant number of charging places for electric vehicles. However, if you move out of the CBD, there will be less and less and less. If you move only 10, for example, if you go move north, 10 kilometers, you might find maybe one or two charging stations, maybe one in Brunswick, one in Faulkner. You know? After that, maybe you will not find any other charging stations. So I think that there should be uh, more charging stations, especially fast charging stations across the regional and uh, freeways. For example, people traveling to the north or to the south, you know, so they will have this opportunity to charge as fast charging. Yeah. And sort of bringing it, bringing it back from like those large distances into a little bit of, you know, the question that, that we opened the interview with, like, what are some of the those very local challenges in terms of, you know, developing the EV infrastructure? If we kind of bring it down to like street level and council level, like what, what prevents the uptake or, or what accelerates the uptake at that level? I think the, the, the thing that will accelerate the building the infrastructure is, the, is to encourage the stakeholders to invest in it. So, and the only way to, uh, uh, to get to that point, we need to build the confidence of the stakeholders that the country and uh, the state is moving towards electric vehicles. They should be the, the councils, they should show the examples. For example, the councils' cars, they should be all electrics. All the, the cars that belong to the council and to the government, they should be moving into all electrics. For example, the, the taxis. So the taxis, all they should be electric. All new taxis, all new, what we call, uh, ride-sharing mm -hmm. uh, vehicles should be uh, what I call electrics. And that will build the confidence in the stakeholders to, be, to come forward and invest in the infrastructures. This is actually the infrastructures is uh, the, the second step. But the first step should be also trying to introduce more incentives in purchasing electric vehicles, such as tax reliefs, uh, for example, uh, increasing uh, the number of, uh, uh, for example, in Victoria in May 2021, the government announced that they give uh, uh, some rebate up to 3000 I think $3,000, $3,000 or $6,000 for 4,000 cars, the first 4,000 cars. I think that should be more. Mm. I think we should make the people feel that, yes, there is no limit as long as you can full you can fulfill the criteria, then you can uh, go forward and purchase the cars. Because the, the, 
the we should the, we should try to lower the total cost of ownership of these electric vehicles. Mm. And uh, well, this is a term which we use. We call it TCO, uh, the total cost of ownerships. So uh, one of the ways is uh, maybe providing some incentives to uh, phase out all this uh, ICE engine, the internal combustion engine vehicles. Mm. Maybe, for example, in producing some scrap uh, initiative, uh, we call uh, uh, rewards for people who scrap their uh, old cars. Because for people who own ICE cars, after certain times, for example, after the market value of the car has no value, some people, they just keep it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, they, yeah. they depreciate so heavily that it's it's yeah. very difficult not to, you know. It's, um, yeah. yeah, the sunk cost in those, in those massive vehicles. So tell us, you know, are you on top of what some of the benefits of owning an electric vehicle are? I think we're all on top of reduced emissions. But are there yeah. other benefits in terms of, you know, performance or upkeep over time? Yeah, I think that's the environmental uh, issue which clearly reduce the emissions. But I think also in terms of even the, the maintenance of the electric vehicles is much cheaper compared to maintaining an uh, internal combustion engines because we have a few parts inside the car. Uh, uh, even now in the, uh, in the UK, the, the electric cars usually are uh, cheaper compared to to the IC engines, for example, like in UK, in Japan, in Texas, in and California, you know. So these are the, some of the benefits uh, which actually the owners should know, and that's actually bring us to another point, which is the awareness. Mm, yeah. Because I think that's what's missing. What people now, with, with the, when we talk to them about the electric vehicle, they will think about the, the range. How this car? How long this car will take me? So that's actually the. Yeah, can I reach to my destinations if I drive an electric vehicle? So this is actually the myth that we should uh, what you call, uh, uh, make it clearer and make it uh, what you call well known to the owners that actually yes, electric cars can go far. Yes, we yeah. have electric now which can go up to 500 kilometers yes. with single plug. Yeah, it's such a it's such a big. I mean, I feel like everything, you know, we've sort of covered up until now, like is a series of like big questions and big answers and lots of different types of change at lots of different different levels. You know, everything from from different levels of government to individuals and, and their experiences, like how if if the end result is, you know, everyone has an electric vehicle or access to an electric vehicle from where we are now, like how far along that kind of timeline in Australia do you think we are? I think, I think the government need to make, need to commit and make decisions by when Australia should face all the ICE vehicles. There should be a target, for example, 2030, and then we will work backward toward that. The government needs to make an announcement like I think what has been announced in the UK, in France, in many many countries in the Europe in Europe. So we need to do that. But I, I think in Australia we target like I think twenty thirty five to twenty forty, I think that will be a good 
target that we should work on that will give us more time to build the infrastructure, to build the confidence, and also to build the local industry to support the, the, th this technology, for example, batteries, because mm. batteries are the main important component in the electric vehicles, which the local industries need to be uh, strengthened and need to be also um, supported to come out with the new technologies. And uh, I think that's also another point which we should discuss, which is the research. I think there should be more research on, uh, on many areas on this technology. For example, I'll give you an example. Where, where will be the best location for uh, EV charging? In your house. This is, yeah, this is, this is the big question that we need to answer. And we, no one can give you an answer unless you do a proper research and proper yeah. study, yeah. collect the data, and then based on that, you can do some suggestions. Yeah. You can see now, currently, most of the charging stations are near to the libraries, near to the what call community centers. But I think there are maybe other areas where we should install this, uh, what I call, uh, charging stations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you've raised so many important issues and hopefully people's minds are buzzing about all the areas for potential here, you know, businesses and batteries and, you know, the idea of where their next car is going to come from and do they even need a car? Maybe they can share a car and it's an EV one. And so there's, there's so much potential here. If only we were heading into an election where people might actually, you know, lobby their politicians to put some policy out there. Professor, uh, well, distinguished Professor Sad Mekalef from Swinburne University, thank you so much for speaking with us tonight about electric vehicle infrastructure. We really appreciate your experience. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good night. Okay. You too. Take care. Thanks. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. We've just been joined by the delightful Eliza Sorensen. Eliza is an infrastructure and security specialist who believes in building software that empowers people. They're dedicated to the digital rights movement and an organiser of the security and privacy track for PyCon Australia, so you might have heard Eliza's name in a few places. They also present educational workshops across Australia for sex workers with the help of peer organisations. And it's kind of with that lens and uh, that, we, that we speak to Eliza this evening. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. It's, it's, uh, it's been a while. Yeah, it's been since 2018, perhaps. Um, so last time we were speaking on this issue, we uh, thought we'd have you on because you're part of a fabulous group called Assembly 4, and you had just created a social media network for sex workers, which was called Switter. Can you just wind us back to 2018, if you will, and give us the context behind which that need emerged? So we launched Twitter, uh, our social network, um, just prior to uh, some US internet legislation coming through, which um, I guess very specifically uh, stated that, you know, sex work um, and sex trafficking are the same thing. So any platform that was seen to be promoting or facilitating it would, could be held criminally and civilly liable. So we launched Twitter as we were seeing so many of our, us sex workers and our friends being kicked off platforms and not having access to each other, like let alone safe advertising options um, or safer advertising options, I should say. Um, so 
Yeah, and I think last time we spoke, we were actually that day kicked off Cloudflare, yes. um, which is great because they usually give Nazis, uh, you know, a seven-day window. <laughs> we got nothing. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It, it says something, doesn't it, about um, the, the shocking behaviour that sex workers have been uh, subject to in online spaces and even in banking spaces. There's a whole bunch of bad behaviour going on. Oh, absolutely. Um, and especially from your online space, like players such as PayPal or Cash or something like that, um, when they're based in the United States, they still have to just adhere to that. Or any company who wants to access that market will always moderate for, I guess, the US market, which is, you know, a larger uh, market than most. So what sorts of, you know, if we put our product manager hats on, what sort of use cases are you seeing for people and what, you know, why they need their own social network? Well, I like to be completely honest, I don't think we do need our own social network and I don't think we ever did. Like mm-hmm. the entire point is that we're being excluded from um, the general town square spaces yeah. and that's not right. Um, it's kind of similar in the respect of voter ID laws, of you're actively preventing people from having a say in what's going on. Um, so, Yeah, we, the system's designed to disenfranchise. Exactly. Yeah. So um, whilst we, you know, the, the main reason I think for us was just having contact with peers. Um, you know, there is niceties about being able to, share community with other people who aren't sex workers. Um, but at that point in time, what we needed was to be able to continue organising and reach each other. And for those who don't remember the Foster piece in um, 2018, it really was a massive deal, particularly in the States. And while you might not have caught it at the time, you'd probably still see echoes of it through the media that you consume. I recently watched the last season of Dear White People and it even came up as a, as a subplot within that context of, you know, university college students, you know, knowing plenty of sex workers and many of them being sex workers and just, you know, saying that this had massive implications on their ability to live their lives as they wanted to? Absolutely. If you didn't hear about it through media, I definitely would say that everyone feels it or sees it. Mm -hmm. Um, You look at tattoo artists, uh, for example, or uh, queer people. Our entire lives are sexualized from the get-go. There was also Instagram bands, the uh, hashtag women or woman for a while. Uh, That was a fun one. Yeah, bit of a reach, wasn't it? But <laughs> So, Eliza, what happened between 2018 and now um, in, in that space? You know, has it improved? Have you won back any territory? <laughs> oh, gosh, that's a, that's a long question. Um, I would say yes and no. Things have improved in the respect that community and other organisations um, from, you know, digital rights and other human rights movements are becoming more coordinated and realising that this kind of attack on the internet isn't just aimed at sex workers. So, you know, the kind of thing we are saying in 2018, um, that this was, you know, eventually going to end up at an attack on end-to-end encryption and uh, anonymous speech online. And that's definitely what we have been seeing, um, you know, in the United Kingdom, in the United States, Australia, Canada. Um, but in terms of it, um, I guess where we are now, um, we've, 
you know, had to make the very sad decision to shut Twitter down. Uh, it closes on the 14th of March. Um, we've currently limited sign-ups and giving people time to move and get their data, um, which is really uh, upsetting for all of us because it's not something we ever expected to happen, mm. um, at least not this way. <laughs> Um, but the Online Safety Act, which was enacted in January 23 of this year, um, it has essentially made it the impossible for small industry and business to run a social media platform. Um, the compliance obligations and civil liability with an, organ- with an executive body who really has failed to work with not just sex workers but the tech community Um, and we don't have it in us um, financially to risk it anymore and it would potentially take down Trist with it um, which is our uh, advertising directory Um, so yeah. It is pretty significant and um, I think it bears repeating that it has now become unaffordable for smaller uh, operators to run social networks in Australia, you know, it's, it's really exclusionary. It's, it's meant that, you know, the power has been consolidated in the hands of the most, um, most enormous companies that are already owning the space. And those people have already been uh, invited to the table multiple times. Uh, Assembly 4 has been involved in the age verification roundtable um, consultation process with uh, eSafety and it has been so disingenuous that you it's quite apparent to everyone that it is only done as a checkbox exercise. E-safety has all the power and we've got all of the consequences. Um, so it's really disappointing that not only us but other really smart people and organisations have tried to assist in actually creating legislation that will help and prevent the kind of things that they're trying to, rather than just waiting for it to come online and then trying to get a platform to do do something. Yeah. So if we reflect on uh, the Verge article when Twitter was originally launched in 2018, uh, it was reporting that you used a domain hosted in Austria um, mm-hmm. because they offered a workaround to this US legislation. Have there been changes to um, to this sort of context in terms of offshoring the sources of data. Obviously, running the thing from Australia has become problematic. But were there any other complications in terms of hosting? Not not in terms of hosting. Um, So it is primarily because we're in Australia and the way that the online safety bill has been written and also the other acts in other countries, so the online safety bill in the United Kingdom and Ireland, um, all have these kind of powers and they can lean on each other's bodies um, or executive bodies. So this is a protective mechanism as well as, a, you know, protecting a company. It, we could potentially be forced to collect ID for Twitter. Um, a social media network is very different to, um, I guess, a lot of other types of platforms. And sex workers have definitely shared information on Twitter about dangerous clients, for example. If the uh, anti-trolling bill, for example, was to go through, that that could be quite dangerous for sex workers to be sharing that information and getting that word out publicly. 
And I think in, in the context of conversations that women have been having in Australia lately, you, you could say dangerous in all sorts of industries, you know, women trying to share information about dangerous judges to work for and what have you. you know. Absolutely. Mm. It, it extends so much further than the sex worker community. And I think is people give our government and our executive bodies too much trust um, when it comes to these overarching um, technical platforms and premises. So if we look at look to Ukraine and what's happening there, mm. what happens if your country goes to war? Do you still trust your executive body with, you know, some of the powers that's an assistance and access amendment? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it, it really is just reiterating that time and time again, um, you know, sex workers um, are often the ones producing the content that have driven the popularity of entire platforms um, and yet are still being treated as the canary in the, you know, in the coal mine um, in terms of those privacies and protections and safety, being able to have um, proper conversations and share information to keep yourself safe, which does impact the whole of population. Um, you know, would you like to see more of your everyday average non-sex work Australian to stand up and back sex workers more? Absolutely. Um, if anyone wants to uh, contact me, you can find our website, Assembly 4, and I will happily walk you through the issues. Um, I think it's, it is so important that we're not only standing up for sex workers, but we're standing up for First Nations people and as well as just ourselves. Like, realistically, it's not just sex workers or marginalised groups that are impacted by this type of legislation. It will come and impact you at some point. Um, it's People say that, you know, there is no privacy because you have a Facebook account. Um, there is a very big difference between a social media platform that you signed up to having access to data versus the government having access to data that you gave a platform, not knowing that it's been subpoenaed. Big time. Yeah, agreed. Well, that's a very generous offer. Um, but even if people don't go to you directly for um, the rundown of what's happening in this space, they should definitely um, access you via uh, assembly4.com. So the four is spelled out, F-O-U-R, and just see some of the great work that you're doing and maybe you know think about how important it is to have independent actors like yourself um, going out, empowering people, and thinking sensitively when new legislation comes through about all the sorts of ramifications we have for marginalised people and all people. Um, and when I say marginalised, I start to think, you know, in the big picture, people who aren't running the joint, you know, people who don't have a lot of power, you know, every regular Joe is effectively yeah, financially marginalised. Mm. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I also would just like to say that you've got organisations such as the Electronic Frontiers Australia and Digital Rights Watch Australia, um, as well as the Human Rights um, Law Group, doing some really fantastic work, um, and Scarlet Alliance, uh, as well as Vixen Collective in, here in Victoria, who very much have just pushed uh, partial decriminalisation of sex work in Australia, uh, also Victoria. Um, which is a, a huge achievement and um, hopefully we get to see decriminalisation across the country. Excellent. Well, Eliza, always very illuminating speaking with you. Thanks for joining us this evening, even if it is under slightly uh, sad circumstances. And um, keep us in the loop, you know. We never know when you'll be fronting another very creative solution to a problem. <laughs> Thank you so much. I look forward to, to hearing to you guys again. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Triple R. What has happened 
in the world of Aldi. <laughs> well, in the world in the world of a sorry, a chain supermarket that will not be named. <laughs> Um, if you are in a chain supermarket that you can maybe deduce the, the name of, uh, they have uh, a pizza bot, um, which they are describing as a first of its kind robotic pizza vending machine. There have uh, been pizza robots as long as there have been robots. I can't imagine how anyone puts a first in front of this. Never but... let the truth get in the way of a good <laughs> pizza pizza story. Um, <laughs> hearing the word pizza bot, you're probably imagining an elaborate thing that constructs a pizza what it actually does is the pizzas are pre-made elsewhere and then chilled and it just sort of heats them up for eight minutes so it's more like uh, a robotic microwave than it is perhaps <laughs> a, a pizza bot but so i mean the only thing the microwave doesn't do is take things in and out of it so really that would be the one it's it's like a it's an arm is that what we, is that what we have here <laughs> Look, if you if you are in uh, North Sydney, I think is where it is, uh, and you have a named supermarket near you, you can head along and check out the the joy that is potentially a pizza bot. And maybe in the future, we'll have more news on different food items that um, come out of robots. I'm still more excited by the uh, the virtual barista, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> we love it. Well, um, speaking of joy, it is now time to lose the shameful username on Snapchat, people. Um, If you, like many of us, signed up for Snapchat back in 2012 with a name reminiscent of your young self, um, I do have some good news for you. You can now say goodbye to BMX Fiend 69 or whatever you might have had on the go (laughs) because from today, Aussie Snapchat users can actually get in there and change their username. This has actually been Snapchat's number one requested feature for a number of years now so uh, get on it kids beautiful i love that hey in um opportunities this week comfy con au 2022 is coming up they've got expressions of interest open they close 4th of march so think about um whether you want to be presenting at this australian and new zealand cybersecurity and cybersecurity adjacent conference um the actual conference will be april 9th and 10th uh, if that's you, check them out at au.comfycon.rocks and good you'll name. find their call for papers. Good name for an event. It is a very good name for an event, isn't it? Yeah. Screams fluffy slippers. <laughs> so just just a little snap back to Snapchat. <laughs> any any embarrassing name shares that we've since changed that you want to share? I think Snapchat was one of the platforms that I never... I think that was a point where I was like, maybe I'm old. Like, oh. maybe I don't get it. No, no, no CyberKitty16 for you? Nah. No, and I would not admit it on the air if it was. There should be a name generator for those sort of fantastic handles. Honestly, there should be. I mean, I've I've got an old nickname from high school, which I'm not going to disclose on air because just nobody needs that in their life. I do wonder if it should be actually treated like Aussies treat nicknames. Like you can't give it to yourself. There should be a responsibility. It goes out to your mates and they're like, this is your handle, live with it. Some sort of of AI system. I think you've got got a startup right there, Vanessa, like an AI that generates nicknames. Maybe. Maybe Pizza Bot won't have enough time on its hands with the pizzas and we can ask it to also name some things. Or we could hack it. We could hack Pizza Bot. And everything will be like Pepper Mozzarella. (laughs) Pepper Anessa. Exactly. Exactly. We could definitely have fun with that. Hey, a uh, big thank you to our guests this evening. Uh, we had the Distinguished Professor, I love that title, uh, Sad Mekile from Swinburne University, opening our eyes about all the different levers that our governments have at their disposal to pull around infrastructure, around education, around investment, around small businesses, around batteries, that 
you know, we're just frankly not seeing enough of. And a big thank you to Eliza Sorensen from Assembly for for their fantastic work with Switter and always um, keeping digital rights on the agenda. Thanks to my fellow hosts, Ro and Paul. It's been a joy to be back in studio with you. Thank you for having us. It's been <laughs> wonderful. So, and, you know, we've been barred into it. The show will be back next Wednesday evening with another select group of our, of our uh, team. Enjoy. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.